Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Earlier this month, U.S. Congressman Blaine Luke DeMeyer announced he would not run for another term. And that's prompted a number of Missouri Republicans to announce or to think about announcing to run for Missouri's third congressional district. The first entrant into what is expected to be a spirited Republican primary is State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman. The Arnold Republican represents a portion of Jefferson County in the Missouri Senate, and she says she has what it takes to succeed Luke DeMeyer in the U.S. House. We plan on bringing all of the major Republican contenders for this seat onto the Politically Speaking podcast to speak about their campaigns and to get their opinions on the issues. We'll also plan on having the major Democratic contenders for the 3rd District on the show as well. Here is my conversation with State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman. You ended up getting into this contest, I think, a day after Congressman Luke DeMeyer announced his retirement. Um, What prompted you to make the decision to enter this contest? Well, so... Listen, I don't think you can run for Congress unless you love your state and you love your country. And I really believe in the American experiment. And I think we've got real problems that need to be solved, whether it's the massive flow of immigration, um, illegal immigration that is absolutely overrunning the border and overrunning the country. We've got inflation that is out of control because of Biden economics. We have really big issues. And it's important that we have people who are ready to fight, who literally jump in on day one and say, no, not here. We're not going to stand for these things. And we're going to have somebody who's a strong fighter who's going to be able to push back. I was talking with Congressman Luke DeMeyer, and he didn't seem like he was really enjoying himself that much. Um, What makes you want to go into a legislative body where there's a lot of dissension within the Republican caucus, and there has just been a lot of um, inertia of solving some of the big issues that you just talked about? Well, uh, here's the thing is that there is always going to be dysfunction. And so wherever you're working, it is imperative that you figure out how you can best serve the people who have sent you there. This seat doesn't belong to Blaine. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the people of the 3rd Congressional District. And they have a right to have somebody who's going to fight for the issues that are important to us, that they're going to stand up and be a part of it, and that they have somebody who's effective, somebody who knows how to get things done, even when a lot of other people can't seem to work within that world. And I don't mean... Um, compromise. I think that a lot of times when people talk like that, it means that they're going to somehow waffle on the things that are important. No, we need an unflinching conservative, somebody who is unwavering, but somebody who can negotiate and who can maneuver. And so Congress has really ceded a lot of authority. We have constitutionally, structurally, a much stronger second branch of government than we have operating right now. And when that happens, you're empowering the bureaucrats, you're empowering career politicians, and When I get there, I'm going to be a part of that solution to make sure that stops. Why do you think that Republicans in the 3rd District should choose you over the other people that may or may not get into the race? 
Well, listen, I think you want somebody who's going to be there day one, who understands that this seat belongs to them and that they're going to have someone who's going to stand up for the values of life, who are going to stand up for protecting the unborn, our Second Amendment rights, somebody who understands that this we don't need new laws to stop the immigration crisis that's happening and overrunning our borders. We need a president and a Congress who is going to say, no, enough. We're going to enforce the laws that are in place. And when you look at my record, you see that nobody can get to my right. I am a staunch fiscal conservative. I am socially more conservative than any other member in the body. And yet I'm able to get things done for the people of Missouri. And I'll continue to do that work there. Now, I want to make it clear that you're not the only person in this situation, but do you live like a mile away from the third district or something like that? So I represent Jefferson County that is currently in the district, has a bigger percentage than many of the other counties, but I am just outside of the line. Does That's that, right. Yeah, I asked Nick Schroer this. He's in a similar situation. Bob mm-hmm. Onder doesn't live in the district either. Is that going to be an issue at all? Or do you think that because the district was drawn so uh, creatively that, and there's going to be other candidates in your position, that this is going to be kind of a non-issue going forward. Listen, I think it's important that you're from the area that you're trying to represent, that you know the people who live and work in that district. And certainly I do and have always represented the district. Um, It was a much bigger percentage of the district that I represented when I was in the state house or before the lines were redrawn in the state Senate seat. But I, I do. So do I think it's important that you understand and know the people of the district and have worked for them before? Absolutely. Do I think that you know, you can throw a stone from the edge of the district line. I don't think most people could even tell you what the lines are of the third congressional district. Jason, I know you could because you've been studying the maps a, for a the redistricting a, a fight. Too, a little too much. And I, yeah. as, as, as you know, like uh, I wasn't expected to be my house in Richmond Heights to be drawn into the second. But it Here is. we are. <laughs> even though I can walk across uh, a highway bridge and I'm suddenly in Cory Bush's district. So let's talk about some issues. You know, a lot of Republicans run for office saying they want to lower spending. They want to tackle the national debt, lower the deficit. My question is, and understanding that you don't have access to the federal budget and you, you're a state legislator, is there any specific spending pro- spending items that the federal government is doing now that you would like to either take a big look at or try to eliminate if you're elected. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest spending items that people are incredibly frustrated with is the amount of resources that are going to Ukraine. What you see is a lack of oversight, a lack of legislative approval even, and the gov- the president moving things around, being very creative. I would say Crooked Joe is an, a, a, a moniker that is well earned. Um, and when we can't even support our own border, when we have our own border crisis happening, it's really, really hard to explain to people why we're spending such large amounts of money over to Ukraine. Now, I don't think anybody wants to empower Putin. It is no surprise that he is not our friend and acknowledging that he's not our friend is important. But that doesn't mean you just write a blank check to people who, when you look at the corruption ratings, there's some real concern and some real problems there. So I think that that's a place that is a really easy place to start. I was talking about this with Senator Schmidt. He was like saying, I don't support giving money to Ukraine because we don't know what victory is and we don't want to just give a blank check to endless wars. And my, uh, I guess, retort was, as somebody who's half Ukrainian and has been following this up, probably closer than a lot of people, 
victory is probably not reclaiming all the territory. I think that that's unlikely. But you know, that's new, right? Yeah. That's something that's being said in just the last few weeks and, right. and wasn't what was said at the onset of the war when Russia invaded. Very it much was so. that we are going to completely not just take back what happened on the invasion last, what, February, mm-hmm. but we're going to, in fact, go back further to when Obama was in the White House and there was no response when they ceded territory to Russia after that occupation. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I think that um, Senator Schmidt is really saying the same thing that I am, which mm-hmm. is we can't have no objective and this open, this, you know, sort of open support into our resources. Okay. But going back to that point, if let's just say Zelensky comes to the House of Representatives and says, I need weapons so we could split the Crimean land bridge in half, or we can put Ukraine in a position where Crimea is so vulnerable that Russia realizes the only way to keep it is to go to the bargaining table. Would that be something that would be less of a blank check and more of a definitive objective that maybe you could eventually support, depending on what the military package is? That was I, a, that it's, was it's, a really specific uh, no, set of hypotheticals. It is, I think but, but the, I, but the I, heart of the yeah, question that you're asking yeah. is: Is there a path that I could see support for intervention in the country for our country into other allies? And I think that there is a path to make sure that we have support of our allies, but we can't do that in a vacuum. And when we're not able to do some basic tenets of government like securing our own border, it's really hard then to justify sending money elsewhere. Well, let's shift to immigration. So there's been a lot of talk about more money for enforcement and changing the laws to maybe de-incentivize people from coming over the border. Um, Before I ask the next question, what would be some things about our immigration policy that is in place now that you would like to see changed? Well, right now we have no enforcement at the at the border. We have California governor saying that any immigrant who comes to this to that state is going to receive free health care, who has access to a driver's license. They're not checking any of the documentation. And it's a slap in the face for people who worked very, very hard to immigrate to this country legally. So when we say what would we do to start, we we have the ability to close the border. In fact, it was done during COVID. Um And then the only people who were allowed to continue to come into this country as it slowly reopened was illegal immigration crossings. Um, And so we have right now a federal government that is weaponizing state governments who are trying to step into the void. You have the Texas National Guard um, taking over border crossings to enforce that. And you have the union that represents the border um, patrol cheering for them. You have a governor in Texas who is saying, we have no more ability to to handle this. And so putting people on planes and on buses and shipping them to sanctuary cities. And the response of those elected officials is not to call the Biden administration and say, hey, you've got to close the border. Their response is to call the governors of the states that are having to solely absorb this illegal activity, it's absurd. And so, again, one of the things that we're often asked to do as conservatives is to enact new laws. This isn't a case that we need new laws. We need enforcement of the laws that are on the books, which say, you, if you would like to come to this country and immigrate here and you have a job to do it, then we have security measures in place to make sure we know that you are safe, that you're not a terrorist, and that you're going to be a contributing member of society. And that's not what's going on right now. Would part of whatever immigration plan eventually comes up in, say, a hypothetical Republican Congress and a Republican presidential administration, 
Would it also include providing some sort of economic aid to some of the countries that some of these people are coming from? Because if you live in a stable country with a good economy, you're less likely to leave. And it seems like the I, I don't know the reason for everybody coming into this country, but a lot of it revolves around political and economic instability in the countries that they're leaving. Does that have to be part of the conversation as well? Well, listen, I'm really skeptical that we can buy our way to creating stability in other countries. I'm frankly skeptical that America's government can buy its way to economic stability, even domestically. And so when we start talking about doing those things, but we have incentivized rule breaking, we're not going to see a change because right now we have, again, liberal politicians who, for political reasons, have um, incentivized people to cross our borders. And that has to stop first and foremost. The only reason I ask that question is I like I think of uh, I don't want to overly personalize this enough. But the reason like why my family left Eastern Europe to come here was because they were li- literally living in straw huts and bathing in cauldrons. And they saw America as a better economic opportunity. I agree with you. Like making like I- I'm just throwing out a country, Honduras or Nicaragua like Luxembourg or or Switzerland in terms of the economy would probably require like hundreds of billions of dollars. But it does seem like, I don't know, maybe it's not like a direct economic things, but maybe like free trade agreements or something like that. Well, certainly getting rid of um, and continuing to deregulate and allowing open trade is something that has been broadly supported by the Republican Party and has really led to some success for some countries. And in fact, you see even like in Argentina, that's one of the very first steps that the newly elected president took to try to stop the um, economic freefall that his country is in. So yes, deregulation, supporting open trade, those are the kinds of things that we can do. But that's, again, going in the same direction of a more open economy, not open borders. Let's talk about Israel, though, because you I remember talking with you last year. You went to Israel. Uh, not oh, last year, just right. Oh, I guess it's 2024. Yes, it was last, last year. year. <laughs> 2023. We, it was it wasn't a year ago. But when I was talking with you um, about the uh, child abuse backlog story, you that's had just right. returned from Israel. Um, would would you want to see Congress pass a military or financial aid package for Israel? And I'll ask kind of the same question I asked Senator Schmidt. Like, couldn't Israel purchase the weaponry they need to engage in the war against Hamas themselves? Do they really need American money to, to do that, basically? So Israel has long been an important partner for the state of Missouri and for the United States in general. And I don't think that you'll probably remember this, but President Truman was the first to recognize the state of Israel um, right after its creation. We have always been an incredibly important partner to them. And it is vital that the only stable democracy in the region that allows us to stand up to our enemies like Iran are able to defend themselves and that we stand with them for as long as it takes. They also, by the way, are a responsible government that we do not have the same kind of corruption concerns that we have. They've been they have been wonderful partners of ours. And so I think it's a little bit trying to draw a, a distinction that is very, very different between what's happening in that region than in some other parts of the world. After October 7th happened, I talked with a lot of Jewish people and, and they are 
generally supportive of what Israel has done to respond to October 7th. But almost universally, they are not happy with the Netanyahu government, either because they were asleep at the switch on October 7th. Or well, they is, were unhappy before, right? So and they were, is, they were unhappy there before. Were, there were massive demonstrations in the streets of Israel against the Netanyahu government. Yeah. We now have in place when you're looking at where their country is, a new coalition government. Immediately, they formed a new government to address the war in Hamas. And I think that when America starts to try to get involved in other states' politics, other nations' politics, we're really stepping outside of our bandwidth. So Mm -hmm. are people rightly concerned about the Netanyahu government? I think they have some legitimate concerns, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it should affect America's standing with our ally Israel, and it certainly doesn't affect that for me. Yeah, and I think the reason I was asking this is there have been some members of Congress who have said, I don't want to give aid to Israel as long as this government is in place. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that to me seems to me to be deflecting because that government is no longer in place. Immediately a coalition government was formed after October 7th, I think lightning fast within the first 72 hours. Mm -hmm. So that feels, again, a little bit like trying to make an excuse. Um, It's like the the politicians like Cori Bush, who's calling for a ceasefire without calling for a return of the hostages, without condemning the acts of Hamas, without saying, you know what, there was there was a ceasefire in place and Hamas broke that ceasefire. And before that, on October 6th, there was a ceasefire in place and Hamas broke that. And every public statement that has been made by the terrorist organization has said, in fact, what we're going to be doing is, again, and again, and again, we will repeat October 7th. So what do you do with that, but stand with your allies and make sure they're able to eradicate that threat? Is there any concern that the concept of eliminating Hamas may become this open-ended thing similar to the war on terror, where you may win a military victory after a short amount of time, but it becomes this 20-year insurgency that requires America's commitment to be very open-ended? We're 100 days into this war. It started, um, I guess, literally Sunday night was the 100th day of the war that Hamas started. And so while I do think it's really important that we're making sure that we're not having entanglements that can never be gotten out of, supporting Israel's right to defend itself, validating their ability to address the terrorist attacks and the crisis that is at hand is is a different thing than what happened with 9-11 and the war on terror. And so sometimes, again, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so you want to make sure that the lessons that were learned um, are carried forward. But no, I have no concern about standing with our allies and making sure that we continue their right to exist. Now, one of the things that you have made a name for yourself in state politics is on your opposition to abortion rights. And you were heavily involved in the bill that ended up banning most abortions in the state. There's been some talk about, I wouldn't say it's an abortion ban because everybody who describes it says nationally would be like 15 weeks or 12 weeks, which is not the same as Missouri. But um, I would be interested to hear kind of your perspective on whether Congress should pass some sort of uniform abortion restriction for every state instead of allowing each state to kind of decide their own destiny. So the most important work that I have been a part of in the state legislature has been as an architect of the Missouri Stands for the Unborn Act. I am unapologetically pro-life. I value the sanctity of every every person um, in the state, whether they're born or not yet. And 
when we look at what has been a historic victory and the overturning of Roe, what it, the real victory there is it's an American story where we had a bad decision by the Supreme Court, where even Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said that was a badly argued decision. It didn't make sense. Uniform rejection of that decision. It's finally overturned after 50 years, and it returns to a vote of the people. I do support any national protections that can take place to protect the unborn. A lot of the real horror stories of how abortion has hurt women putting protections in place to empower them to be able to take care of their children. So yeah, I do support that. I don't know whether right now there is support enough to be able to do that. And politics is the art of the possible. And so there are other things that I will be working on as well. But uh, certainly I am pro-life above and above and be all on all, you know, that's the most important work that I have been able to do. And as a mother in particular, and a mother of six, I find this issue to be really, really important to people. If you were elected to the House, are there any committees or focuses you would want to um, hone in on? Yeah, so a lot of times the work, you and I actually talk a lot about this, the work that I do in the State House mm-hmm. is around children's issues. Mm-hmm. It's around protecting the most vulnerable. Um, and I am a tax attorney by trade. Originally, the work that I did was um, estate planning work, and that is uh, pretty wonky and pretty in the details. And so I would cons- probably lean towards trying to do that type of work. Yeah. So, well, I guess you got to get elected first before you ask to be on which committees, but that would seem to be ways and means, financial services, appropriations, sort of stuff like Even that. Even ag. So yeah. they handle all of the TANF, which is the food stamps. Mm-hmm. So, and ag is an incredibly important um, industry for the third congressional district. So those are the types of committees that I would be looking at. Is there any person in Congress now mm-hmm. that you would want to, that you look up to or would want to partner with if you're elected? Yeah, so Jason Smith from the 8th Congressional District has done a phenomenal job. And I think he's a real example of how you can make sure that you stand strong on your conservative principles, but also are effective. He is chair of one of the most powerful committees in Congress, Ways and Means. Um, and yet he doesn't vote with leadership every time. And he really represents the social and cultural things. That I'm showing are- this you right now. He actually just worked with uh, Senator Ron Wyden to come up with an agreement to expand the, not expand, but the child tax credit and extend it for for three years along with doing everything else. I'm like, wow, this guy, I remember this guy was uh, some random dude in the Missouri House, and now he has tons of power, basically. So I think Jason's done a really good job of of maintaining his credentials um, and his his viewpoint while also getting things done for the country. I also have to say that, you know, Ann Wagner, um, from a in the district standpoint has been an incredible mentor for me. When I ran for the state house for the very first time in my primary, she endorsed me. She went and knocked doors with me. And I envisioned doing the same kind of thing because who we have representing our district matters a lot. And so I think that I'll be getting involved to make sure that I can help support those who are also wanting to serve. My understanding from seeing your social media is you've endorsed Donald Trump over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm proud to stand with President Trump. I think that when he was uh, in the White House, we had an economy that was working for the people of Missouri. We had a world that was more stable You know, Putin didn't invade Ukraine when he was in the White House. Hamas didn't 
come over the border when he was in the White House. And the reason why is because people knew that he was going to stand up and, and not take that kind of a thing. And so we need a strong leader. We need somebody who's going to make sure that we turn the around Biden economics. Um, I think, you know, crooked show Biden has done a terrible job. And it's really important that the party unite behind the president and we reelect him. So I have a relative who voted for Trump twice. And, you know, I asked her, are you going to vote for her again? She's like, no, she's 35. She thinks, you know, the concept of two 70 to 80 year old baby boomers is not very enticing, even for Republicans. That's basically been the argument of Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley that we need like a generational contrast with Joe Biden. Uh, what would kind of be your response to that? Well, I think what you're seeing is the people who are running against President Trump really grasping for a justification of why he shouldn't be the nominee after he was such a fantastic president. And so they're going to things like identity politics. So what I would say to that uh, voter is, really, you're going to vote for Joe Biden at the end of the day? I just don't believe that that is true. And when you have overwhelming majorities in every contest supporting the president. At some point, the party needs to recognize he is the leader of our party and we need to get behind him because we need to make sure that Joe Biden is no longer in office. That's State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman, an Arnold Republican who is running for Missouri's third congressional district seat. For more coverage of the 2024 election cycle, go to stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.